mindfulness, it's not about the breath, it's about you. And mindfulness brings the contention, brings what needs to be there in order to ask myself the right questions. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, author of the book Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. And the goal of this podcast is to offer interviews that deepen our understanding about the relationship between mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. For this episode, I'm speaking with Paula Ramirez, a mindfulness teacher who's done some amazing work in the field that I'm excited to share with you. Paula currently works at the United Nations, offering mindfulness programs to both humanitarian workers and trauma survivors in countries like South Sudan, Nepal, and then most recently with the displaced Rohingya refugee community in Bangladesh. She's also co-founder of Breathe International, a Colombia-based nonprofit organization that promotes mindfulness for peacebuilding in areas of conflict all over the world. I first met Paula when we were co-presenting at a mindfulness conference in South Africa this past year, and I was immediately struck by her vast experience in the field and the integrity that she brings to all of her work. In our conversation, we cover cultural adaptations of mindfulness programs, trauma-sensitive modifications to mindful body scans, specifically in the communities that she's working with, and self-care practices that she's found helpful, especially within humanitarian work. So without further ado, I bring you Paula Ramirez. Hi, Paula. Thanks for being here. I know we've been talking a lot for the last year having this conversation and we just happen to be we just happen to be recording it right now. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how did how did you get to be where you are? Uh, maybe you could talk about what breathe is for, for people that don't know and just really how did you come to to get into this work and and um, and be where you are. Yeah, thank you. Um so yeah I I think it all started by being a Colombian national, being a person who who grew up in the middle of an armed conflict. And um, I was very interested in understanding how we could do conflict transformation and peace building that was effective for communities. So I started working on peace uh, um, uh, education and peace building with teachers and with students in regions in Colombia. And what was interesting of working with um, conflict transformation and peace building is that it was very much about working with uh, peace with the other and peace at the collective level. But then there was the peace within that was missing. Mm -hmm. And because of an illness that I had, which was like a self-immune illness, I went to Asia and like to start trying to understand like what was happening with me against me. (laughs) And um, in this process of going within, it was like, "Mm, okay, peace from within. And uh, Matthias Rust, who is uh, from Switzerland, he was living in Colombia, and he was working as well on peace building projects. We had met in Budapest, like in 2009, and he was there and he said, why don't we do a mindfulness project in Colombia? I was in India at that time. I went back to Colombia and Breathe International, like what Breathe International is today, 
was born at that time as being Respira in Colombia. And we started working mindfulness practice with teachers and students in regions affected by the armed conflict. And then while we were there, it was clear that working with teachers and students meant working in the larger community. So I began like working with UN as well, like they had presence in one of the places that I was living and working at, which is Tumaco in the Pacific coast in Colombia. And they were interested about the work that we were doing. And we did a pilot with women in Tumaco that were um, sexual violence survivors in the frame of the armed conflict. And we did like a pilot with this group of women where I did the usual uh, MBSR course with a little bit of modifications like cultural ones and some others like breathing and body scan, which I'll be happy to talk about later. Mm-hmm. And then after that pilot, um, one person at the UN was like, we can definitely take these to other places. And she went to South Sudan with the UN. And while she was there, yeah, she invited us to go and saying, if this worked in a con- in a context as difficult as Tumaco, let us try it here. So I mm-hmm. went to South Sudan and that's where the whole UN connection started. We have done pilots. Uh, IFRC has, um, which is the Red Cross, has uh, done a evaluation of this integration of mindfulness into the humanitarian work. Um, and that's how it all began. Wow. Can you talk at all about what has you drawn to bringing mindfulness practices into the heart of conflicted areas? or communities, because to me, you're going really right to the heart of, from what I've, you know, studied and read about the areas that you're in, you know, just the, to the real heart of collective experiences of trauma. And I'm wondering, like, both what draws you there, and then what, are you, what have you learned inside of any of these projects, if there's any stories, and again, we can talk about the cultural context that you've been in, but I'm so curious what you've learned about how the MBSR program, where it works, where it hasn't worked, where do you see it supporting trauma recovery? What is it not? It's just, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you've learned over time. Mm, yeah. So I think what, what, what draws me to, to, to be here, it's, um, is this like insight that we made at brief and it's like, it's so important in this kind of of places that are so turned by violence, like peace within, peace within and and compassion, really, like the possibility of activating resilience, really, from mindfulness practice. Like I have have worked with psychologists in, in this context, of course, and all the clinical practice, it's it's so good. And all the approaches that we can bring are very important, but I think that really mindfulness brings working with the nervous system. Yes, like it really touches the possibility of doing work like bottom up from the body, like feeling 
what is happening, regulating your nervous system and coming back to yourself as a way of enhancing and opening the door for mental health. It's, 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 it's huge. So that for me, is the, the reason why, and as well, like the amount. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah, please. I, I'm curious, what are you up to in the practices? And part of it is that I had the experience for a number of years where I was more in a, I'd say like a bare mindfulness practice or just with some very straightforward instructions. Some of that was practicing on my own where it wasn't helping regulate the nervous system. And I'd say, you know, the tuning into the body and paying more attention to sensations mm. sometimes was very overactivating mm. and wasn't supporting regulation. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about that possibility, I'm wondering, are there mm. practices or techniques that you're using that enables it to be more regulating for people? Right. Yes. Thank you. Or maybe you're saying it's just the act. Maybe it's just paying attention. That's really helpful for people. I think there are, there are, there are two things there. And it's like one is when I have seen people doing mental health work to others where their own nervous system is not like regulated or when you're not really in touch with yourself and you're just with the other person and just like, but you're not really listening. Like, I think that there's something about mindfulness practice in these contexts that really comes from the practitioner, from the person who is giving support. Mm. So for me, it's like at some point, I don't even have to go into a mindfulness practice. I don't even have to go there. Yes, if the person, if the nervous system of the other person is very activated, I don't even have to go there. I just, I am there listening, observing what's happening, being with the person with the experience that is real with the person with my regulated nervous system and that regulates the other person nervous system yeah and that allows a space slowly slowly to mutually regulate and perhaps offering a practice where for me movement has been very important so after that part of from my nervous system really tuning in and knowing, hmm, do I go here or should I do this or shouldn't I? And just, I just need to be here like as a container holding this. Yes. When, when I see that, then I connect with what's, what's needed. Yes. And, um, again, for me, movement, like going into the practice through movement has been very useful and within Every practice, choice. Like choice would be for me the great, like I, one, one of the most important um, tools of trauma-sensitive work in mindfulness. Yes, it's leaving people in choice with the right amount of choice. Yes, it's not when you give too much choice, it's too much. <laughs> when you don't give choice at all. Um, yes, so it's like, that's why tuning in with your own self to be able to regulate and know how much choice to give. But that, it's huge for people, knowing that they can go to, to their body, go to the movement, perhaps this side, perhaps the other side. That regulates slowly, slowly the system. That's great. It, it makes me realize it, the, how often I still come back to the, the way that I will tend to think about mindfulness meditation in a one-dimensional way i'll just i'll just always think about it 
primarily is sitting. And what I hear you talking about is that might be one aspect of the program would be you know, either breath awareness or interoceptive awareness. Mm. But you're also talking about what I hear is some interpersonal regulation that can happen through contact and also through movement. Like it sounds like you're working with different, um, different practices inside of a program or a course and yeah. you're deciding which one is going to work best. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And in terms of this connects with the question that you were asking and it's like what you have learned and what the uh, MBSR as such, like has it been useful or how, which, which things are working. And if, if we think that the MBSR um, works with body scan practice from the second session, like I, I would, I have been working a little bit more first, like in one or second session, more with, with movement, um, mm -hmm. more with movement so that there's like space for building up bodily resources, mm -hmm. um, and, and movement meaning as well, like perhaps listening to sounds. Yes. Like not going so much straightforward into, yeah, into body scan or breathing, um, and building up, building up really like these bodily resources so that people know where to go in case they have difficulties yeah. with the other yeah. practices that yeah. are more much like introspective. For the people that don't know the, that makes so much sense. And for the people that don't know the mindfulness based stress reduction program, can you talk a little bit about when you said body scan week two, can you just let people know what, um, where that fits into the program or just say something about that? Yeah, so in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction is an eight-week program with a retreat in the middle. So for me, it's it's like actually like a nine-week program mm. um, where mindfulness practices are integrated with uh, some topics um, to be able like to understand how stress works and the place the practice has uh, to help us reduce our stress. Um, so in session two of that eight week, nine week program, um, a body scan is like there as part of the, of the practice. I also want to say that, um, the, like body scan, it's very healing for people. Like I was very scared at the beginning about doing body scans with women that were affect, like that were survivors of sexual violence mm -hmm. and but really going into the bodily resource like the self-touch or being able just like to find safe spaces in your body or safe spaces like elsewhere within it's if it's like listening to other things and going into the practice has been so powerful for people and i i've yeah, and in this context, it's just like it's it's amazing to see how hmm. people need to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and and it's we are like people don't feel safe to sleep at night, and it's like the body scan. I don't mind if they don't go through the whole body scan if they fall asleep. Like I have had people going into REM within five minutes, <laughs> and it's like. This is what's needed. And I am holding that. 
But of course, the previous aspect of building up as much resources as possible to be able to go into those practices with our resources ready to support us, it's so yeah. important. Yeah. If we could just hang here with the body scan piece for a moment, because I know that you're someone who focuses a lot and works with the body, both in movement and then also in these different programs that you're offering. And you had told me a story once about working with landmine survivors um, in Colombia and those who um, maybe were differently abled or had, um, you know, had experienced losing a limb inside of um, a landmine. And I, I was really impacted hearing you talk about doing body scan work inside of that environment. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience or just share any stories from that that time. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, oh, so many learnings from the Landmine Survivors Project in, in Colombia. Um, Could you talk even even a little context? I, I peep, some people, well, many people, just I don't think would know the context of of that whole project and what was happening there. Yeah. So, so Colombia, after I don't know uh, Afghanistan and a number of other countries, like the third country that has more landmines because of the armed conflict and the historical, the national historical memory center wanted to do some work around, uh, survivors of war, of war in the country. And I was part of, um, of a foundation that is called, a uh, uh, prolongar. We did, um, they were doing trauma healing work and I was part of, of that team where we were supporting the historical national memory center to do like to build up the memory of landmine survivors specifically at the beginning i was not very sure about how to guide body scans to people who have lost their limbs and i at the beginning i thought that it was going to be more useful like if there's someone that doesn't have the left arm then don't talk about the left arm and just do body scan on the right <laughs> arm. <laughs> and while like, I just started talking with the survivors as such. And what I realized is that what we know, but then like listening from them and their experience and the experience of the caregivers, like my limb is still there. I still feel it. And we started working a lot around pain in the phantom limb and integrating the phantom limb into the body scan practice. And it was, it has been so powerful for them, like to be able to integrate as part of, a, of an awareness experience, of an experience that invites you to feel your whole self, yes, your whole body, like that part that is missing was so important for them like to also like acknowledge that hmm, it's there, I feel it, it's real. And I am making it part of this experience and I can actually take a look at it where there's no pain because I only feel it where when I have pain in a thing that is not there. Mm. <laughs> So that actually made the whole experience with pain 
much more um, like smoother for them. Mm -hmm. Because when you're working with pain with a part of your body that you have, okay. But when you're working with pain with a part of your body that you don't have and people don't see it, and it's like, am I going crazy? Am I like, what? why is this whole thing? So the body scan for landmine survivors and working with pain um, and working with self-touch as well, like in those places, in the limb, in the place where it's, it's also, oh, it, 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 it was very important for them as part of integrating the experience and uh, like knowing who they are in the present without that limb but being part of their experience <laughs> it's such a powerful story mm -hmm. i mean when i've mentioned that modification to people around body scans i feel like there's an intuitive yes around it where people go of course of course there would be an inclusion and a wholeness and then the understandable maybe reflexive move as a teacher or someone guiding to not bring attention to a limb that's not there um, you know maybe that would touch on pain or shame and just i i hear you really working towards just a more a holistic approach to people's bodies and then giving leaving them in choice as well for the practice i think you and i have had this conversation a couple times about body scans and the ways that i know personally i've been I was reluctant or reticent at first to do slower body scans with people who are struggling with trauma. And, mm. and then to hear, to learn more research suggesting that actually this is, for many people, self-reported one of the most beneficial aspects of a mindfulness program, for example, and mm. the, the challenge of and the importance of keeping it in the program. So I'm always just curious how people, it feels like such a central part of mindfulness programs. I'm always curious how people are working with it. And I know that's, it's a place that you do a lot of work. Yeah. And it makes, it really makes so much sense for, for people, David, like, yeah. Like, and I, I can really hear you when you say like, maybe not like doing like long body scan practices, but then how do we invite people to do that? Yes. Like, and which resources we have been able to build or how do we guide them so that we leave always people in choice, like choice of my eyes closed or open, um, like knowing, like letting them know every now and then, remember that if you want to change your posture, you're welcome to do it. You know, like it's that choice. It's so powerful to go through this practice because this practice is really like integration of your body of your experience it's like it's it's powerful and then if that doesn't happen through attention of the whole practice again sleeping <laughs> sleeping yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so important it's so important it's just like of course sleep and make a snore like name it like if people are snoring name it as being natural mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. fine mm -hmm. And, and something as well, now that I'm talking about naming, it's like for landmine survivors to be able to talk about the shame of them not having the limb, for example, and like naming what is, what is in, in the room, like giving people the possibility to express what is it that they are struggling with in a body scan, 
and making that part of the practice. Yeah. yeah. And would you do that out of curiosity um, with, you know, a pair and share, like two people sharing? Would you do it in the whole group or would you mix it up? What are some of your practices for um, that kind of sharing that you're talking about? Mm, so with the Landmine Survivor Project, I had uh, survivors as such and caregivers. Mm -hmm. So people who didn't have like their limbs and people who had them. And um, yeah, it's like just naming, naming what is what is difficult for you. I will give you another example with uh, Raju. Raju is um, one of uh, one person, one uh, Rohingya person that I have been working with inside of a larger group, um, which is a mix of Bangladeshi and Rohingya because they are in charge of site management. So it's a mixed group. And he was having trouble with the body scan because he was telling me, you know, what is happening to me in the body scan is that I close my eyes and I feel, and I see the fire of my village. I see my whole village in fire and I just can't, I just can't. So it's like naming that in the whole like team that he was able to say that in the whole group and the whole group, like, supporting him yes and exploring and giving space to explore just with him like what would be helpful for him maybe if touch or if it was my safe like safe touch like helping him supporting him to feel his feet at the beginning yes and that was very helpful for him so we decided that um he could go into the body scan while i was holding his feet Mm -hmm. Yes. And the whole group knew it. We named it. He didn't stay with the shame of it mm -hmm. by himself. And the whole group was supporting of his experience, which also integrated us, like which also allowed like reconciliation processes to happen between a group of Rohingya and Bangladeshis. So, yeah, it's like naming people know what they need you just need to yeah, listen yeah and i hear you i feel like i hear you the way you've worked with building the capacity for people to really get to name what's true in a group over time and i also mm -hmm. my sense is you you're not someone who likes to do just a one-off training you're someone who actually likes to build trust over time with a group is that fair to say that you're yeah you're a fan of yeah that? Yeah. On, on the note, because you mentioned it, could you, yes. could you talk a little bit about touch? Uh, you know, there's there's just different approaches mm -hmm. to it. And then I know there's also different cultural aspects to whether someone who's teaching mindfulness and meditation would make physical contact with a participant. And I'm just wondering how you, and then there's the therapeutic aspect of it where, mm. you know, it's just so different with different traditions. And I'm wondering how you think about touch, where you see it supportive, mm. or if there's any places where it would be um, hands-off, which mm. I wasn't meaning that as a pun, but you know, where you wouldn't make contact with people. Mm. Yeah, so for me, I think that the first place is really to understand, like to offer self-touch as a self-compassionate uh, practice, if that's yeah, possible. Right. Like, so first... Yeah like when people are talking about their experiences and they, for example, start talking and they start rubbing their, their leg or they start uh, holding their hands. And it's like, hmm, 
hold on. Can you? Can we stay just one second? One, because I I see that while you are talking, like you're rubbing your leg right now. And can we? Can we stay with your mm -hmm. leg in this moment? Like, can can we go into that that movement that you're doing right now? And then the person would stay with that. And I ask what what is happening, and the person is like, mm, this is actually comforting. Like what, what I found is that when there's a movement, like a self, like a touch or a movement that happens while you're telling a story, is that your body, your nervous system is trying to regulate through that. And when you name, when you see it and you name it and the person is able to talk about it, it's like, oh, this is actually a resource for me. Yes, I feel that when I rub my legs or that when I hold my hands, I feel safe. So it's like going into that touch, into that safe space for you with your touch, with your body that came, that comes from you. Yes. And I'll take it from there. Like that would give me as well light in terms of would it be a good idea to offer like a caring touch from my side to this person or maybe not. With, with with Raju, like we had like trust in each other, like we had built trust. And I asked him only until like fifth session if if it if, if it would be helpful for him, like if I would touch his feet and we explored. And it was very useful for him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's also building trust. But it's from building their first their confidence within their body and their self-touch. Yeah then building the trust of the group with me among them through the practice through the conversations and then perhaps exploring if touch if caring touch is possible yeah, yeah. and for me it's it's very deep and it's very powerful it, yeah it has worked in a number of ways yeah great i'm aware that we're we that you bring in a lot of different uh you know different approaches different modalities and Again, we'll, I'll come back in a moment. I want to ask you again about that cultural context piece because I know you, it sounds like you have some stories there. And I'm wondering how often in these programs that you're doing a form of just silent meditation. How often are you getting back to that core, you know, core practice of silent mindfulness meditation? Is it longer practices? Do you build? How how often do you? you know, do that form of practice in mm, programs. Mm. So they are they are not as long as they are supposed to be at some point in the in the program. Like I mean it also depends a lot in the group. Yes, right. So I am thinking with South Sudanese women, uh we had long seated practices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh not from the beginning, but towards the end of the program, they were able to sit more and more mm -hmm. with site management team right now, which is like what I, the group that I'm working with right now and is like more within my system right now. It's like with them, the practices have not been so long, but it's just because of, of, of what the group brings and you feel it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, could you talk about that? What are you tracking? Or what are you, yeah, what are you looking for that would tell you, okay, with the Sudanese women, there's this is a time to continue with practice or not. I'm so curious what you look for or 
if you know what you're tracking? Mm, I think it's like it, it it's all from the debrief yeah. of the group. Yeah. Like I think there are there are two places. One is like me being with my practice while I guide, being them with them, like holding my practice while I hold the guidance really gives like a, like a, like a perception of what's happening with the group. But that's tricky because then you cannot know really like, you know, like maybe someone is like moving or maybe someone you feel that someone is sleepy, but they're actually not. Right. So <laughs> yes. How, how, how do you know? But I, I, I've been trusting more and more in, in what I get to feel from the group while guiding. But then after like having the, having people share in diets, how was their experience and what happened? And then coming to the large group gives me like an idea of, of, how is the practice integrating and what's happening? That's one. But also when people have to do like home practices, which I record if we have like WhatsApp groups or if they don't have uh, just like to give them a recording device with my voice, like guiding practices that they do back home. And then we come back and we check upon that practice. Like there's a number of things that give me an idea of how much, how long to do sitting practices. That's so great. Mm. The term I've used around monitoring uh, or that I've learned around monitoring, that you're engaged all the time, right from the start of a, of a class or a program right to the end and all those little ways that you can be tracking. So that's great to hear about. It makes so much sense that you would be getting so much feedback in uh, them sharing and the constant experimentation mm -hmm. and sensing a group and their capacity with practice that that makes so much sense and i i don't know how to say this <laughs> but it's like really like the 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 like trusting in one's own practice as well and again it's tricky because how do you know Yes, maybe mm -hmm. you see a person again that is sleepy and maybe the person is not sleepy. But then oh, there's there's something in holding your practice that holds the group as well. And you know, and I don't know how to say, but you know. Do you mean do you mean holding your own practice? Yes. Aha, uh -huh, I see, I see. Yeah. Yes, like again, and it turns back into embodiment. Um, and, and practicing, practicing, practicing a lot yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, but there's, there's just trust yeah. in that for you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, the difference of if I have sat for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before guiding anything, it just feels so much stronger. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I make intuitively better decisions about what a person might need or what a group might need in terms of instruction in the moment. So, and I hear practice too, mm -hmm. that there's a practice of leading people through a class or arcs over time that would just continually give you information about what people need. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's both. Yes. Yeah. It's practice, practice, like practice, uh, guiding groups, but what you mentioned, your own personal practice, 
before going into our room. And for me, it's very useful. The after mm -hmm. like what, what, what is like, I, I, I do checkups with my system after as well and see who, you know, what's, what's, what's here for me in the experience of my sensation, of my emotion, of my thoughts. Um, because that's also a huge aspect of self-care in this work. And that self-care is actually the main tool to do good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say mm -hmm. more about you? I know self-care is a big focus for you. I'm curious if you could talk about the intersection of trauma, whether it may be secondary trauma or just trauma exposure self-care humanitarian work what what you're learning and seeing at that intersection mm. yeah so with with this question i i just feel like a lot of of um empathy and compassion i don't know with the humanitarian world so it's it's so tough it's such a tough work i mean it's like it's it's endless amounts of hours working and working and working weekends. We start work at eight, we leave the office at 8 PM or 7 PM. And you're always, you're constantly engaged in one thing and the other, and it's an emergency response. And it's like, blah, 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 blah. And yes, it's true that inside humanitarian world, there are practices like rest and uh, recovery, which is like every number of weeks people can go out. But what I have seen is that again, stress can be traumatic in this context. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And when there are no self-care practices in the humanitarian world, I have seen people suffer so much and going into like the amount of alcohol people take here or like coping mechanisms that are so self-destructive. Yeah. I see that every day and that hampers themselves and the work that they do with people like you can really get to be cynic in this in this work like you're supposed to be a humanitarian worker and then the humanitarian aspect is not there because you have to be technical because you have to yes i don't care if you were just raped just give me what is what is happening yes like give me blah, 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 numbers or how much blood or blah, blah, blah. and it's like we run out of the humanitarian sensitivity because sometimes this context is so much that we feel that our strategy for self-care is detaching from the human experience and that's so painful that's so painful because you shut down the possibility of you being human also with your family also back home and you get to be reactive and it's like self-care that place of touching your humanity and going back into it and touching your sensitivity with compassion and love always for me is the tool to do humanitarian work and it's not part yeah. of it yeah. as i see it right now and do you see mindfulness as a as an important part whatever aspect of the practice but just say even just a a simple sitting practice. Do you see that as an important part of self-care or what do you find most effective for the people that mm. humanitarian workers that you, that you work with? I think mindfulness practice gives the possibility of knowing who you are 
like it's like beyond the seated practice beyond whatever practice is like how do you get in touch with yourself yes like that moment where you really stop and come to yourself and make a reflection upon like what is this context doing to me what is happening to me like just having the space for thinking about that it's huge and that's what mindfulness brings mindfulness it's not about the breath it's about you and mindfulness brings the contention brings what needs to be there in order to ask myself the right questions about what is happening what is it that i need do i need this do i don't need this how do i put limits yes and that's something that mindfulness practice brings so then from there yes if it's like a seated practice of course it's useful a movement practice of course is useful but then it's like how do we we bring like space in the room to say hey what is happening to you right now yeah. from a nervous system that is regulated and that cares really about that question about what's happening yes like mirroring yeah. like being together in a circle of people yeah it, it gets back to one of the paradoxes to me inside of mindfulness as it's been practiced especially in terms of say chronic pain or some of the original mindfulness-based stress reduction applications of actually paying close attention to what's happening when what's happening is pain. And what you're saying about, if I'm imagining myself as a humanitarian worker who's turned to alcohol, that in some ways that's a really smart, although potentially mm. self-destructive strategy, but it, you know, if it's helping sure. me numb, if it's helping me to get through my day, why, you know, why would I, that core question, pay more attention to what's happening in my life, in this moment, in this potentially traumatic um, environment that I'm in. And I'm just, it, it just, again, gets back to that core question of, and to me, it's a hard question to answer of, well, why would I pay more attention to this? How could that help me instead mm. of alcohol? Why be mindful? when I could actually have a drink and mm. be able to get through yeah. my day. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very tough one. I think there's, there's something, and it's like to understand ourselves as being part of something larger, as being part of a group of people, collective, like the humanitarian workers, yes? Like, reality is built out of habit yes we, we build habit and that's our reality so if what we have seen in this context is that what is helpful is uh, alcohol and i know and besides that that works for me so i get a double validation mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. that's that's the way in which this works ah perfect why would i want to go and take a look at what's painful Yes, if everyone does it and it works for me, perfect. Yes, so it's like, again, if the larger system, if people at the humanitarian world, which are decision makers, for example, 
can integrate more mindfulness practice and more mindfulness practitioners can come into this world and opening the just just a question of you know what i hear you and i want to listen how is this experience for you only that can change the collective around thinking that work 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 alcohol 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 and um not feeling because it's too much is good right so it's like what 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 do we need from where doing this work with with consciousness with which heart coming here and saying hey as part of the humanitarian work it's important for us to track where are we what is the impact of the work that we do and go back to yourself and mindfulness practices as support for that question mm. and slowly slowly going into it yes that's mm. beautiful mm. and i imagine empowering for people engaged in that work to really yes. have that to have that tool and that and that practice yes yeah yes yeah. and and it's 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 useful for them in their work here but then for them with their families back home yeah Right. With the people they love, like imagine being here eight weeks, like crazy, working and working and going back home one week to your family. Like how alienating mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, like, and if you don't have practices that help you mm, come to yourself, come to yourself, reflect what's happening, which kind of, from where do you want to go and see your child and your wife? Mm. From where? From which place? Can't imagine how challenging that is. Yeah, to, <laughs> yeah. Just mm -hmm. to shift gears like that, and mm -hmm. so we've been talking about some just some different um, areas in which you work, and this might be a bridge back into this conversation about uh, cultural context and how you're working. But you know, you're talking about humanitarian work. You're working in different cultures and countries, and I'm fascinated by this uh, this question about how is it that we know that a mindfulness program is a mindfulness program? At what point does it become something different? And I feel like people are grappling with this question in different ways. And I'm wondering how you think about when you're offering mindfulness-based stress reduction program or a different program that you're offering, how is it that you're both kind of staying in a structure while also, it sounds like, being very responsive to what's needed, the cultural context of the group. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you navigate that tension between the two and, and what you've learned along the way. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for this question. I, um, I think it's a tough one. And I had, um, so out of, of what I hear, there are like two, two, two things that I, that I hear. And it's like, when do you know that it's a mindfulness-based program and then when do you know that it's a mindfulness-based stress reduction program? Yes, like I, I see like two different things. And it's like from the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, um, I'm just going to share like something that happened to me. And it's like when I started doing the MBSR as such in South Sudan with uh, survivors, I asked myself that question, like I was like, 
what do I do? Because in session number seven, women brought their, their drums and they wanted to play their, their drums, but that's not at all right. session number seven. That's not part of the curriculum. <laughs> schedule. Right. <laughs> yes. And I just gave space for what people were bringing in. And I felt a little bit strange, like why, yes, when is this an MBSR program and when is it not? And I spoke with a prominent teacher about this and he said mindfulness is like the program was created to give room to people yes if if you are combining the practice with whatever is true for the group of people that you're working with then that's fine and i yes there are many opinions about this issue and of course this can raise like a lot of questions and but yes, for me, it's more like I know that it's a mindfulness-based program because it has mindfulness practices. And I know that it's like an MBSR program because I am using the platform, like the, the, the topics and, again, the practice and how everything is weaved into what is relevant for people and for their context. Right. So, yes, if we are talking about nonviolent uh, communication, yes, or if we're talking about the, the communication calendar and people bring their drums because that's the way for them to communicate better with the other ethne, with the other group, well, bring it in. You know, like, of course, there's room for that. Yes, it's like for me, it's like, when is it that a structure keeps you from giving support to what's needed? Yes, like I can totally rely and, and of course, there is a structure there that is important to follow. And it's there because of a reason. Yes, it has been tested. We have, it, it's important for people. It's relevant. It works. But then when we are so much stick into, I need to do this and then this and then this in this time frame, I am losing the whole point, which is give people room for what's there, for what's present. So then again, it comes back to the practice. It's come back to your own personal practice. And it's like how your own practice tells you what is the balance between keeping this structure knowing that the structure is just there to give room for people because you're doing the program for people, not because you want to check <laughs> what you have done one thing after the other. So it's like, again, the structure as a platform to give you <sighs> the confidence you need for everything that needs to come in the room to be there. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it totally makes sense and it's the it's such a rich and important issue i think about the both the, the power of structure of providing yeah. boundaries and saying yes. you know yes. saying you know they're actually it's okay to be uncomfortable or that structure can shine a light on where people might be in some form of unhelpful avoidance and then at the same time to your point at the right. you know the importance of the structure just being there to reveal, to provide a space for people to be with themselves, to not be um, 
so tied so tightly to a structure. So just that tension and that inevitable, it's so dynamic and that's why I get so interested in it, the way that there's no fixed firm process yeah, where you can just say, okay, well, this is it, A plus B. It's really dynamic in what you said about the practice. It's coming, we need to have our practice to tune in moment to moment to know what's being asked and then we'll make mistakes right. and we do our best as we go. But there's so much here for me mm. in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, well, I get the you. feeling we could probably talk for another another hour. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> because I know we. Um, yeah. And this may be a, a good place to to end. Is there anything else that you we haven't talked about that you want to, or do you want to talk at all about breathe and how people could learn about um, breathe and respiro? Mm, yes, thank you. So breathe, it's what we started as I said previously in Colombia in 2013 as respira in Colombia, and now because of um, Matthias, like being from Switzerland and having many of our trainees living in different parts of of the world. We have moved into being Breathe International right now. And um, we are going to, like, we we train, we are doing, so we have different programs. One is working with teachers and with students in schools. We have another one, which is Breathe in Reconciliation, which is more working in uh, humanitarian sectors or in armed, conflicted places. So we are expanding to different places. We have a project in El Salvador in schools right now. Uh, I'm here in Bangladesh, in, in South uh, Sudan, we will work again with youth gangs. So yes, we are doing that. And we are also getting ready for a training of trainers that's going to happen next year. So yes, we are planning to move slowly, slowly and to train more and more people um so if you want to know more about us yes breathe.international yeah so that's thank you for giving me space for talking about breathe great yeah. yeah no i encourage people to there's some great writing on there about report backs on the different projects you've done and um, encourage people to go check it out so thank you for your time and thank, thank you. you for your amazing work to everyone inside of breathe who's doing that work all the teachers you've trained mm -hmm. and uh it's amazing to me that we could actually have this conversation while you're in bangladesh 13 hours ahead of ahead of us here <laughs> no it's incredible and, uh, appreciate you making the time mm -hmm. so thanks for being here thank you so much david thank you so much and thank you everyone for for listening that brings us to the end of this episode of the trauma sensitive mindfulness podcast if you have any suggestions of people that you'd like us to talk to or topics that you'd like us to cover, you're welcome to write us at support at davidcherlevin.com. You can also find that email on our website. And thanks again for listening. We look forward to the next episode and talk to you again soon.